0: On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Alex Debris about serverless purity versus practicality. This is Serverless Chats, episode number one. everybody. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you are listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Alex Debris. Hey, Alex. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. So you are an engineering manager at Serverless Inc. That's Serverless with the capital S, not to get confused. Um, they're out of San Francisco, but you actually work out of Omaha, Nebraska. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and uh, and what Serverless Inc. is up to?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I've been at Serverless Inc. for um, two years now. I started originally on the growth team and now I'm working on the engineering team. But, um, you know, Serverless Inc., they're really creators of the serverless framework, which is a tool for developing and managing serverless applications. So um, it really reduces, you know, the tedium around setting up API gateway and IAM and all that stuff. And it really helps you um, write your write your business logic and use AWS Lambda and serverless technologies um, effectively and quickly. Um, you know, there's a huge com- community of advocates, plugins, best practices um, around the service framework. I think we just crossed thirty thousand stars on GitHub. So, um, yeah, really loving what we're doing here.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I think if, if somebody doesn't know what the serverless framework is yet, then uh, they, they haven't been paying attention yeah. for the last couple of years. Sure. Um, so you also do, you also write a blog and you have uh, a really, really good resource for people who are uh, interested in learning DynamoDB, actually people who are using DynamoDB and actually want to learn how to use it better. Uh, that's dynamodbguide.com. Uh, that and your blog, any uh, what, what's going on with that stuff?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, Let's start with DynamoDB guide first. This was um, when I was still in the growth team at Serverless. I was doing a fair bit of content writing and we were using DynamoDB a lot. And I watched this um, the 2017 reInvent talk from Rick Houlihan, who's uh, this, this wizard that works on DynamoDB at AWS. Um, he did a talk on some best practices and I, I just loved it. I think I watched it you know, four times in, in two or three weeks. And um, so this was Christmas break 2017. I'm like, I, I just got to get some of this stuff out here. So um, I, I wrote the resource that I wish I had when I started with Dynamo, cause I thought I knew it well and then I saw Rick teach it and I, I did not. So um, yeah, dynamodbguide.com. Um, it has you know sort of a walkthrough of, of all the different um, API stuff around DynamoDB, secondary indexes, all that stuff, as well as some uh, data modeling examples too.
0: Awesome. And your blog is mostly serverless and S3 batch stuff, all kinds of stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My blog, I would say is just a lot of, um, again, sort of like DynamoDB guide, just the guides I wish I had when I started, I think both with DynamoDB guide and then a lot of the content on my blog, it's stuff I was familiar with and then I want to teach it to people. And then when I teach it, I find I learn a lot of stuff that I actually didn't know. So it helps me and I hope it helps other people as well.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Um, a great blog and the DynamoDB guide is, is awesome. Um, and yes, Rick Houlihan is a wizard. Um, and I don't know how he does some of the things he does, but, uh, I have watched his 2018 podcast or the 2018 has a podcast version that I think I've listened to it maybe 50 times (laughs) on like 0.75 speed so that you can uh, maybe understand it. Uh, um, So anyways, I wanted to have you on because I want to talk about this idea of serverless purity versus practicality, right? And so I think that um, we see a lot of debate on Twitter and Forget about what serverless is and what serverless isn't, but more so, you know, what's the right way? How should we build a serverless app versus, um, you know, how we can practically build a serverless app? And I think there's a lot of things around that, whether it's developer experience and and that sort of stuff. But what what are your thoughts on on this sort of debate?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I I think it's pretty fascinating to see, like you say, you know, if you're if you're on Twitter and you're following a lot of the the big time um, people doing service architectures in this space—they have a lot of, of great tips around best practices and this is what you should be doing, all that stuff. But I find, you know, as we're as I'm building service applications, or as I'm talking to customers and users that are building service applications, um, there are times when there's tension, I think, between what the best practices are and what their circumstances are, and this could be because uh, maybe they're not coming in with a greenfield application or maybe they have a data model that doesn't fit DynamoDB or something like that. Um, and, and it's difficult on how you how you sort of um, square that with with recommending something that you know, isn't the, the best practice or the most pure serverless application, but you also got to help people ship products, right. Um, so, so I think balancing that tension can be tough at times.
0: Yeah, so I want to kind of dive into a couple of these discussions that we've we've uh, we've been seeing on Twitter, and um, and I think there, like you said, there are a few champions who sort of lead the effort uh, for each one of these. Um, but let's talk about the API gateway service integrations, right? So we know that you know the the typical serverless model would be API gateway to Lambda function and then access something else, but it's possible to do that without using Lambda, right? Yep, correct.
1: So you can, um, like you're saying, you can do what's called an API Gateway Service Integration where maybe you take that incoming HTTP event, you maybe you validate it, authenticate it, maybe twist up the shape a little bit, and then you can put it directly into a, a different AWS service like SNS, SQS, Kinesis, something like that, rather than going through a Lambda function first.
0: But that's but that involves using. I mean, if you're if you're just sending the data straight in and and you've got uh, maybe a lambda authorizer, uh, that's one thing. But what about if you're transforming the data, right? So I mean, that seems like a different uh, different beast than writing some node or some uh, Python.
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, so AW, API gateway allows you to write what are called VTL templates. So it's in uh, Velocity template language, which I believe is an Apache project. But um, it's a semi-declarative um, templating language where you can you know take take some input like a JSON payload body, the headers all that stuff and and create um, you know a different shape that you want that that satisfies the, the API format of, of whatever service you're integrating with um, it's it's doable but I would say not a lot of people have experience with with VTL so it's definitely a learning curve there and, and I'd say it has some some quirks and unexpected stuff um, for people that are new to VTL.
0: And so you mentioned the quirks, and so I'm thinking to myself: I, here I am writing an application. I've got all my tooling in place. Um, I've got my testing frameworks, and I can test all this stuff. And then uh, I say, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go pure, uh, you know, API gateway to DynamoDB, and I'm gonna write some uh, transformations in, in uh, VTL. And I do that, and then how do I how do I test that?
1: Yeah, that's that's the tricky question, right? You you probably have to deploy your application up to API gateway and then send in an HTTP request and then um, you know, check the DynamoDB table to make sure it got there all right. So you you're probably going to have more of a a cloud native integration test suite than a a local unit test suite that you can go through to to validate some of that logic.
0: But is that like a a a mental burden on developers? I mean, are there trade-offs? I mean, do we what's the benefit of doing it versus just saying look I can write the transformation in lambda because I know I know that but if I if I move over to using these VTL templates and, and things and I have a hard time testing it I've got to test it in the cloud um, you know what's the I mean should I be nervous about making changes or things like that I mean what what are your thoughts on that
1: Yeah, great question um, I, I think it to me I think it does add uh, a fair bit of burden around the development process and I think, I think you really got to balance um, what your needs are and and what your comfort level is with with vtl versus writing something in, in lambda and having full test coverage so um, to me my rule of thumb is you know if you're not doing any sophisticated transformation or if you're not doing any fine grain authorization um, i think it's fine to to use api service integrations so uh, the example that i go to is maybe you have a front end or an IoT device or something like that, that's just sending in in data and you're mostly just you're only validating the shape of it. um, Or maybe, you know, transforming the keys around a little bit before sending it into SNS and, and Kinesis, and then it's going to get processed by a different system. I think that's a totally valid uh, use of API uh, gateway service integrations if you want to use it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you, you know, you mentioned connecting with DynamoDB, and you can write directly to DynamoDB there. Um, I don't love it for um, more sophisticated use cases where maybe you need to uh, pull off a key um, from the incoming JSON body. Maybe you, that's going to be your partition key for the the DynamoDB table that you're querying. Maybe you're checking a sub-property on there to make sure this user has access to this thing and rejecting if not. Or if you're, if you're, um, you know, reconstructing a complex JSON object after you retrieve the DynamoDB um, item. You know, any of that stuff where where it gets more complicated. Um, my rule of thumb generally is if there's a if statement or a for loop in your VTL. Um, now it's code. It's not config anymore, and you probably should do it in a lambda rather than than in VTL.
0: yeah, so I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, I love the idea of service integrations, but uh, but I, I think if you if you start making developers do that mental shift even more so than just moving to serverless, uh, you start to introduce uh, you start to introduce some. Uh, I, I guess, resistance, maybe is, 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 I don't know if that's the best word, but absolutely. anyways, so so I think, so that's great. So now we've got, um, so I, maybe a judge's ruling on this. I mean, so you would, if somebody says, hey, look, yes, I could use a service integration, uh, but I just feel more comfortable Using code to do it. I mean, what would you what would you say to those people?
1: I I don't judge those people at all because that's mostly where I am on things. I think it's uh, I think API gateway service integrations are interesting and useful in some aspects, but I don't necessarily think it's it's a it's a best practice that if you're not doing it, um, you're doing something wrong. I think it's a choice you can make, and it, and it, it depends on your circumstances. How often is that code going to be changing? How much control do you need over error handling and, and messages that you're returning to the client that's calling you? Things like that um, that, that would uh, determine whether you should use it.
0: Yeah, great. OK, so let's move on to this idea of monolithic Lambda functions versus single purpose Lambda functions. Um, so obviously, the AWS best practice is single purpose Lambda function, do something very, very simple. Uh, you know one thing do one thing well, but I think you and I both know from seeing developers move services to serverless the most common use case probably is uh, transport a an express app uh, you know and have you know fifty routes in there so what are your what are your thoughts on on this
1: yeah absolutely um, i I agree generally with the the single purpose. Lambda function best practice, I think that's, that's generally the best way to go. But I think there are two strong exceptions to that. And and the first one you mentioned is just like, directly porting over an Express app. And, and you know, it could be porting over an existing Express app, or it could be I'm very familiar with Express. And and that's what I want to use. That's how I'm productive. But this is the easiest way for me to host Express. This is easier and cheaper even than Heroku or something like that. So, you know, um, the, the first sort of bucketed of use cases, I would say where it's okay to have a monolithic Lambda function it are those people that want to run Express or if you're running Python, maybe you want to run Flask and handle all your routing within a single function and you get a pretty great local development experience, but you also get um, the scaling and easy deployments of the serverless experience as well. So I think that's a, a, a valid use case for some people. And I think it's also a great on-ramp to serverless because Usually what happens is you start with that Express or that Flask app where you're serving web APIs, and then you decide, oh, I need some background processing. So in addition to this Express app, I'm gonna have an SNS or an SQS integration, or now I need some stream processing, I'm gonna use Kinesis. And as you do that, you become more familiar with the Lambda model. And now you have you know, you know, have all your routes in the, in the Express app, but you also have these other functions and events that are single purpose, and you start to learn how that works. And then maybe your next project that needs Uh, HTTP endpoints, maybe you reach for a native Lambda single-purpose function rather than going for something like Express or Flask.
0: Yeah, and you also are going to have the problem too. uh, I mean, I think one of the issues we run into when you start to build complex serverless apps that, uh, that deploy multiple functions with multiple endpoints and other services that are interacting with them is you start running into cloud formation limits as well.
1: Yep, absolutely, and that's the that's the second use case where I, I recommend people put multiple um, endpoints into a into a single function. Is you know, cloud CloudFormation only allows you to have two hundred resources in a single stack, and it may sound like a lot. You're like, how am I ever going to have you know two hundred endpoints? But the reality is, you're not going to get two hundred endpoints because if you ever hook up a uh, an, an endpoint using Lambda and API Gateway, it's going to create um, five resources for each endpoint you're going to create it's going to create the function it's going to create the function version it's going to create the log group and it's going to create the API gateway method and um, path or, or resource. So for every single function you get you're going to get five resources So now you're talking um, you know max 40 or so resources uh, or 40 or so endpoints and then but also you got to think about um, additional things that happen in your service like DynamodB tables, SqS, Queues, SNS topics, other infrastructure as well. So you're probably not going to get even uh, thirty or thirty-five endpoints.
0: And so, how would would multiple or or multiple single-purpose uh, functions? How would those fit into a concept of a microservice? Right. So we often hear the term nano service, which I don't really like that term at all. Uh, but you know, you have. Multiple functions working together to form some sort of microservice. What are your thoughts on kind of how how you would set that up with with serverless?
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think a lot of the same um, general micro microservice principles apply. Of just sort of find out where your bounded contexts are, and that's where you can split things up. Um, it's probably not one function. <laughs> it's not the one function nano service that you're talking about. But it's probably a whole set of Crud functionality around a particular resource, and maybe even two or three resources that live together and interact pretty closely with each other are related to each other. Um, so anything um, you know that um, touches the same databases or, or shared infrastructure might be might be in a service. Anything that that um, the objects really relate to each other pretty closely, I would split those into into a service. And if you can do that and stay under the two hundred uh, resource limit in CloudFormation while having a a function for every um, endpoint, I think that's great. If you can't, you know, that's when you start to look into other options of, of putting it all together into one function.
0: Yeah, and I and I really like uh, the serverless framework, sort of putting everything together within a single microservice, because then you can test it all together, right? It just, it makes it a little bit easier to, uh, to kind of uh, reason about uh, how these services work together, as opposed to just deploying 30 functions from one serverless YAML file that you have no idea or that they don't necessarily work together or work in concert. So I don't know, that's, that's for me anyways. But um, all right. So let's see if we can make Paul uh, Johnston's ears ring and talk about using relational databases uh, with serverless. So that's another one of these topics where it's, you know, you've got relational databases or RDBMS um, and, uh, you know, versus something like DynamoDB. Uh, and obviously we've got Aurora serverless now, which, you know, again, is very flexible. It grows, you know, but it's still resource limitations and they've introduced the uh, the data API. So a couple of different ways that we can kind of interact with that. But um, if you listen to Rick Houlihan, um, you know, and you you follow the uh, maybe the church of, of Rick, um, mm-hmm. you know, you believe that DynamoDB is the future, at least for OLTP apps or DSS and that um, these are the kind of things where if you can fit your model into it, uh, it seems to make sense. So I'll let you. I mean, what are your thoughts of uh, relational versus DynamoDB and, and how it fits into the serverless world?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, as we talked about at the beginning, you know, I, I made the DynamoDB guide. I'm very much a um, believer and lover of DynamoDB, and I think it's it's just a great tool. And specifically, I think it just works so well with AWS Lambda, right? So with AWS Lambda, you have this world of uh, what I call hyper ephemeral compute, where your compute can scale up to 1000 invocations in a minute, or it can scale that back down to zero, uh, just as quickly. And something like that uh, doesn't work very well with a relational database where you need to, you know, set up a, a persistent TCP connection and and maintain that connection. And, and your database probably has a, a maximum number of connection limit com- connections that can be established at any time. So um, you know, if you scale up to a thousand instances of your Lambda function, all trying to hit your database, you're going to run into limits, and that's going to be tough to debug. Now you have to set up something like a PG Bouncer, you know, like a, a connection pool between mm-hmm. your Lambda functions and um, and your RDBMS. And and the additional problem too with these sort of more serverful databases like um, Postgres or MySQL, or anything like that, is um, often you want to have those network partition where they're not accessible to the public internet. Um, so now you need to put them in a, a VPC, which means your Lambda needs to be in a VPC, which means, at least for right now, there's a VPC cold start penalty um, of you know, multiple seconds that can really, um, your users, it, it's something that your users are really gonna notice if you get that. So I think the the connection model and, and just the, that model um, of our DBMS does not work well with Lambda and DynamoDB does work really well. And that's what I love about DynamoDB you know http connection iam authorization um very very um high scalability potential if, if you need it um but you know it it doesn't always uh the, the data modeling aspect i think is the the tricky part there
0: oh yeah so let's so let's talk about data modeling for a minute because uh i mean i can take pretty much any uh enti- entity relationship model uh you know and, and normalize it you know do go to 3nf or whatever, and uh, I can, I can do that. I can visualize it in my head. I can probably do it without even writing it down. And I, and I could, I could do that. And I think that most people who are designing and building databases, um, or building data models, they understand that as well. Um, but when you can't do third normal form anymore, and we're starting to, uh, denormalize that data across all this stuff, I mean, there is, there's a learning curve. I mean, it is a, it is a, it's like a, giant Sudoku puzzle sometimes trying to figure these things out. So, you know, it does that outweigh the benefit of using DynamoDB? Does it outweigh that that trade off and that learning curve?
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think that's, uh, that's really the crux of this whole issue. And I think there are two issues there. One is that short to medium term learning curve that you're talking about. And it's a steep learning curve, because you really got to figure that out. And, and it's in such a a sensitive area, right? Your data. You don't want to lose data, or or having to perform a migration down the road is costly. Um, so you really want to do it right the first time. But you often don't have enough experience the first time, so that can be pretty tricky. So I think there's that first issue of of just learning it. And and to me, I think it's worth putting in the time to learn it and maybe using it in some smaller areas first and really getting the feel for it, and then um, um, and then figuring out how you can use it in more areas down the road. Um, the second issue I think with DynamoDB, and this is a more persistent one, is you know Dynamo DynamoDB is great if you know your access patterns and they're not going to change. So you know um, all the way you're going to read from your database, you know all the ways you're going to write to to your database, and um, you know that's going to stay persistent over time. That's going to scale up as as high as you want it to go. Um, the difficulty if you're bringing a new product to market or um, something like that, you know. your data model is probably shifting as you're adding new features, you're adding new entities, you're changing how you're querying, how you're filtering, all that stuff. And DynamoDB is not well-suited for changing your access patterns down the road. Um, you know, it's schemaless, but, but schemaless doesn't mean sort of uh, free-flowing, do everything you want, because you really got to think about how am I going to access this data? And if that changes, uh, you're in big trouble. And so I think that's one area that's that's still pretty tricky, right, where you have, serverless is so great for rapid experimentation and really shipping quickly and, and, and changing stuff and, and focusing on business value. But then you have a database um, that's um, sort of locked in once you have once you've set up your core data model, and how do you both evolve your data model um, with your app? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, and, and I think that, um, you know, for for most people, I mean, if you start talking about uh, overloaded indexes and adjacency lists <laughs> and things like that, it, uh, it it gets a little bit confusing. But I mean, I, I totally agree with you on the changing access patterns. It's just I look at this now and I say every time I want to do something, right, a small app. And again, we're talking maybe we're not talking about a uh, a full blown uh, a full blown application with you know fifty different access patterns. Uh, but we're talking about maybe a small microservice that does something very specific. And there may be 10 access patterns or five access patterns. Um, You know, I look at something like that and I say, do I really want to set up A database for this? You know, do I want, do I need, I mean, it seems like it's possible to store this stuff with all the magic that we've learned, um, from past, uh, from past reinvents. Um, all that magic is possible and we can do these hierarchies and we can do these, uh, um, you know, uh, one-to-many joins and many-to-many joins or not really joins, but we can represent these relationships in a DynamoDB. So, is it worth it to take the time to learn these, these skills so that when you have that next project um, that, that maybe you do know the access patterns or that they're, they're, they're going to be relatively simple, uh, does it make sense to, to do that? Does it, should this be the de facto? Should DynamoDB be your de facto database if you're developing a serverless application on AWS?
1: I, I'm a strong proponent of yes. There, I mean, I, I wrote the DynamoDB guide. I I love it. So I think yes. I think it fits so many things about serverless that that it it um, is just a nice fit with Lambda. Both the pricing model, the connection model, everything I think really works well with a serverless application. Um, you're you're absolutely right that there is the learning curve, but I think um, those type of use cases that you mentioned, where you have a microservice and it only has five to ten access patterns, like maybe you don't even need a, a secondary index or maybe you just need one, right? Like that's that's really the perfect use case for Lambda, where you've got something isolated, just a few entities in it and um, a, just a few types of entities. You can have as many you know rows as you want. But um, I think that's a, a great fit for Dynamo and for serverless applications.
0: And I think the other piece of it, too, is uh, I've had people say, well, yeah, but I can't, you know, run. I can't do counts. I can't do aggregations. I can't do those sort of things. Uh, and I've always found it very, very easy just to, whether you're doing scans of the database to dump that on a regular basis, or now that you can use, um, you know, DynamoDB streams, um, that you have the ability to sort of replicate that data into a, either aggregate it yourself as part of that that uh, calculation uh, or just dump it into another database. Like I, I, I've i done that before where I've taken Dynamo and dumped it into SQL so, or into MySQL so that you could actually do some things, do some magic on the back end. Um, but in terms of my app being able to scale and access those things, my users don't need to run complex queries they just need to get data put data maybe see a list of some data that's associated with this and uh, and, and that that to me is is a very very good use case for dynamo and uh, with all the other services around it it just seems uh, it, it seems crazy to me to start with the assumption that you need a relational database. Um, but again, I don't know. I, maybe I'm, I'm I, I always was on the other side and now I'm, uh, I've, I've uh, I think I've become a convert, but um, only because I've seen what's possible. Um, but anyways.
1: True, so. true, true. And one, one thing I want to mention that I just found out today, and I think this is so cool, but you can actually copy data straight from DynamoDB into a Redshift. Cluster. So if you're using Redshift for analytics, which at my last company, that's, I, I did a lot of that. You can go into that Redshift database and run a copy command and it pulls out, it, it, it just fully managed, pulls out all the data from DynamoDB, puts it into a table in Redshift and now you can query on it, which I think is is really cool. You don't need to mess with streams or anything like that. It's just, it, it pulls it all out for you. So um, that's that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: That's yeah. a very, very cool feature. Uh, okay, so let's move on to one more topic here. Uh, And this has to do with sort of optimizing your Lambda functions uh, or optimizing your serverless apps in general. Um, So obviously you see a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, my Lambda bill was 18 cents this month. (laughs) Um, And I've talked to other people who said, well, if that's the case, then maybe you're not running an enterprise serverless application if it's only 18 cents. So is there, is there such a thing as premature optimization? Um, you know, are we trying to make our package sizes smaller? Is that, I mean, do we go through all this extra effort? I know, you know, Ben Kehoe, for example, um, the, the you know, he's, he said a number of times that the, the code that they use for iRobot, like this, it's not worth it for them to optimize that code. Cause it runs just fine and it, it doesn't cost a lot of money. And of course they are enterprise, but, um, I don't know, just what are your thoughts on this idea of optimizations?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That's interesting, you know, to hear from Ben Kehoe, and he's a he's a great guy to to hear from. I think it it depends on your use case, and it depends on how your application is being used. You know, um, Ben Kehoe, um, you know, works for iRobot, and it might not be a lot of user facing stuff, where maybe the the um, you know the robot vacuum is is sending up data, or maybe they're processing data in a backline or uh, background, offline fashion, and it's not like a user facing thing where a user is going to notice any latency. Um, but on the other side, you know, someone like Brian LaRue, who I really like, he he's the creator of the architect framework, he's he's vigilant on on package size and says, um, I think he was saying the other day that their CI CD um, process actually fails, fails the build if their package size is over, package size is over five meg, which I think is uh, really interesting and, and what what his um, you know, his point there is that the bigger your package size, the longer your function cold start is going to be because now it's got to uh, load all that all that code into, into memory before it starts executing and it's going to take a little while. And if you're building a user facing application, now that's something you need to think about where uh, it, it's not going to be as snappy for your users. So it, it's something to think about for sure. Um, I think in terms of, you know, purity versus practicality there, you need to think about your use cases and what matters to you. And um, you know, if you're not gonna have a user-facing application, I wouldn't worry that much about optimizing it. Um, it you know, or if your if your bill's not that high right now, like don't worry about optimizing it. But most importantly, I think this is true of of serverless or non-serverless, but I think it's it's been a focus in the serverless community, but like focus on building a product that brings value. And you know, if if speed is something that brings value to your customers because they want to quick responsive app, then maybe focus on speed, but otherwise focus on building those features and that core experience that, that your users are really going to care about. Focus on that first rather than um, some of the optimization techniques, I think.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause I don't think your, I don't think a cold start latency every once in a while is, is going to, is going to be what puts the nail in the coffin of your application. I hope not. It's, yeah. it's likely going to be uh, that you don't get to market fast enough, or you don't iterate on it enough. And and I know me personally, uh, I'm the worst when it comes to front end. Um, I'm not a typical front end developer, but I do you know a little a couple of things here and there, and I maintain a React uh, app, and I, I do some of these things, and so. I will spend hours just trying to get something to align right sometimes, it seems. Um, you know, and it's an incredible waste of time. And I yeah. and the optimization there really isn't worth it. And I I liken that to sort of the back end of uh, of building serverless applications where I think it goes back to what we were originally talking about with, you know, the service integrations. Like, you know, if you're if you're getting started and you're building an app that uh you know, that you're testing, you're trying to get out there fast, you know, then maybe all of these things we sort of, uh, highlighted, I mean, you know, build a monolithic Lambda function if that's the easiest way to do it. Um, Use Lambda. Don't worry about the service integrations. It's not going to cost you that much more, especially if the app doesn't have a ton of traffic. Um, use a relational database if you need to. If that's the quickest way for you to, to build an application and model it uh, and, and and figure out what your app your uh, your access patterns are going to be, do that. Um, and you know what? If it's a you know if you're using a bunch of uh, dependencies in order to make the, the app run. Um, you know, do it like, I just want people to jump into serverless and start using it. Uh, and then to kind of figure out these things later. So, I mean, maybe we kind of just wrap this up on this topic. I mean, you, y- you hear a lot of people talking about, we should be using service integrations. And, and I don't know if they're saying that you have to use service integrations, but they're saying, you know, this is a good way to do it. And, uh, you know, let's use DynamoDB cause that's a good way to do it. And I'm lately have been sort of, uh, uh guilty of that myself. Um. And you know, and, and oh, let's make the package sizes smaller. Let's uh, uh you know, let's use these single-purpose functions. I mean, what what is your advice to the to the developer who is getting started with serverless? What is your advice to them when they hear all this noise about all these best practices and stuff?
1: Yep, I'd say jump in. You know, like you can you can worry about the best practices and all that stuff, but really you gotta. You got to jump in and, and start building some stuff and figure it out and you know do a little research on best practices but don't don't take it as gospel because you'll build some stuff you'll figure out what works for you and what doesn't and and you'll get better over time i think um you know ben kehoe often promotes that this is there's a service spectrum or, or even service is a ladder where maybe you start at um you know just pulling off little pieces of your app and putting them in lambda or using some managed services and over time you start to Bite off more and more of that serverless, serverless mindset, and 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 get into the serverless ecosystem. And I think that's true here too. Like you don't need to go um, whole hog the, the the very first time you build a serverless application. You know, get the get the core of the benefits, which is uh, the easy deployments, the the scaling, the pricing model, uh, the time to market, really, and the total cost of ownership. And then you can you can get um, more and more pure as you go.
0: I don't think we can add much to that. So let's wrap it up, Alex. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing all of your serverless knowledge with the uh, community. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, how do they do that?
1: Sure, Jeremy, thanks for having me. Um, you can find me at Twitter. I'm at alexbdebris. debris. Um, My blog, as Jeremy mentioned at the beginning, is at alexdebris.com. I've also got my email there. If you wanna email me, my Twitter DMs are open. I'm always happy to to hear from anyone that has questions in the community.
0: And you are on uh, GitHub and LinkedIn and all of those other social platforms. Yeah, I'm
1: not findable, yep.
0: Great, we'll put all that in the show notes. Thanks again. Sounds great, thanks Jeremy. That's this week's episode of Serverless Chats. I want to give a huge thank you to Mr. Alex Debris for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash one. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next time.